Almighty God, uphold thou me, that I may uplift thee. Amen. Please be seated. May I begin by simply saying what an honor it is to be here. Um, I'm not sure that I need a microphone because I'm a very loud human being and I feel like I'm going to rattle if I keep this microphone on. <laughs> so just raise your hand if you can't hear me. Um, I have known Beth all of her life. Uh, my father baptized her I, uh, when she was about that age. Um, I recruited her into seminary, so I take full responsibility and credit for her as an intellectual and priest. It was all, you could just, you can say thanks on the way out. Um, I have been also around the church for a very long time. My father's a priest, my grandfather's a priest, my great-grandfather's a priest. It's like a genetic illness for us. Um, but as I get older, I am very clear about what the church needs, and it boils down to two things. First, we need people who have the intellectual chops to make a case for Christianity in a day that is, frankly, um, in living in a fairly post-Christian and secularized world. And the second, we need to find people that manifest joy and wonder in all of that they do. And I have to tell you, um, one of the... Beyond the fact that I really need some explanation for what this gnome is doing in the pulpit, I, it, it, this does speak volumes about probably your parish as a whole, um, but certainly as Beth is a leader, I'm just going to put this gnome right here so that gnome can look out at you. Um, whenever I get down on the church and think, oh, what are we doing? I have to tell you, she doesn't know this, I look at that picture of Beth on your website with a baby and just like joyfully asking people to welcome in and enter in. And I'm reminded of just what a gift um, people like Beth are in, in, our, par in our parishes. So um, I, I can remember vividly when I was a young priest and Beth was a teenager and she would come up to me at diocesan youth programs and I'd be sort of trying to avoid everything because diocesan youth conventions make me kind of itchy. And, and, you'd, and you'd find, and Beth would just be there and say, hey, Marietta, how are you? And just loved the church. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to see and meet her parish because I know you love her right back. It's not just Beth. It's the people that are loving um, this community into life. So, all right. Now... Um, now that I've really established that I adore your rector, I want to just say that it's a, that's an important factor when the said rector calls you up and or actually just texts you and says, "Hey, do you want to preach on um in a few Sundays?" And oh, by the way, we're not going to use the lectionary ch text, the really good lectionary text for this Sunday, or about the rich man and Lazarus. They're like a total chip shot. Every priest has twenty five sermons about them. They, but she says, "No, we're gonna." We're going to be focusing on St. Michael and, and, that, and, that re, and that story in Revelation, you know, the, the angels and the demons and all that apocalyptic stuff that's so fun and is the source of most of the great misunderstandings in the church. So uh, let's do that. Um, so, you know, I'd said yes, and then she, it's the bait and switch. I mean, she's very, you can't, don't trust her when she asks you to preach. Um, so 
So I want to start with that text of, of St. Michael um, and, and start with a little bit of an explanation of how I have tried to wrestle with Revelation and these apocalyptic texts over time. Um, it's written by John of Patmos, not the Apostle John, but most scholars, modern scholars, believe that that was a very different John, and it was a John that was banished into this Greek island by a ruthless Roman emperor, and it describes this warrior, this hero, this kind of cosmic character, um, and it's really not a happy message. I mean, those of you with kids, I'm sorry, that it's not, it's not the easiest thing. I mean, it's exciting. There are dragons involved, um, but it's not exactly the easiest message to hear. In a nutshell, it says, those of us who dwell on earth, you, me, you know, on earth, um, our goose is basically cooked. And Satan is upon us, you know, Satan in the form of some sort of dragon or beast. And if you are a fan of the, the new Stranger Things series, you probably have this mental image of what John is thinking. Um, I don't want you to stop at that. I don't want that image to kind of stop you up and say, this is crazy. I don't really want to think about this St. Michael character because, because the imagery is hard and not something I relate to. I want to just tell you a little bit about the first time I learned to start poking a hole at this, what feels like, frankly, this giant looming Hindenburg of biblical and theological strife that we have in these images um, of Revelation. These things are often so misunderstood. Uh, one summer when I was in seminary, and I was like 12 when I was in seminary, I was young, I was fun. Um, I said, it's all been downhill. Um, I traveled through the Greek islands with one of my best friends, who was Iranian, and she was doing a, a, a PhD at Johns Hopkins in Middle Eastern Studies. So we were, we were like, we were, we were basically nerds, but we would stay out all night and have a great time. Um, and then we would wake up in the morning, and we would have breakfast, and we would decide uh, what we were going to study uh, and what we were going to see each day. We're sort of undercover nerds, basically. So. Um, we would roll into breakfast and we would chew on some sort of theological or uh, political implication of these ancient texts. Not kidding. We did not admit this to the boys we would meet the night before, but we really were there to really chew on these ancient texts. So um, the we got to Patmos and we, you know, we had this, the Greek islands. If you ever get a chance to just kind of wander through, especially right off of the coast of Turkey. They are just epically beautiful. Um, they're, they're volcanic, and they, and they kind of sit above the, this incredible, glimmering Mediterranean, and, and they're just stunning to see, and to, it's such a privilege to be able to see that kind of thing. So the two of us made our way up the goat trails in Patmos up to this monastery to go find this cave. And this cave is where this John character supposedly was, was in jail. Um, and that, in that jail, in that cave, he wrote this book of Revelation. And so the two of us, you know, we're, 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 we're talking about all of the sort of history of this, and we're looking for the jail, and we're following 
up the trail and and we see this kind of monastery on the hill the monastery that that controls the the that controls you know uh tourists and people like us um that looks more like a fortress than it does like a monastery and we walked into this cave and we were we were expecting terrible things because I mean, Revelation is just filled with these epic, horrible, complicated images. We looked around and we said, well, this is kind of nice. <laughs> what was he thinking? I mean, he was looking out over this, this beautiful sea in this extraordinary place. Where in the world did John get this kind of imagery when he was sitting there atop of that beautiful mountain? So what I can't have come to understand, and it was particularly interesting to be traveling there with someone who really understood the history of the Babylonian Empire, is that all of that cosmic imagery, the centaurs, the wild beasts that define the book of Revelation, most of that comes really from the experience of the Babylonian captivity. And what John was doing while he was jailed is he was remembering he was remembering the stories and the imagery that defined the Jewish people's experience in Babylon. And he was thinking about the experience that the Jewish people had in captivity and slavery in Egypt. So he was praying and thinking upon the experiences of his ancestors. What you need to understand about the history of the Babylonian captivity is in, in very, very brief history um, from, from me. So six, century before, six centuries before Christ, you had King Nebuchadnezzar II who took the Jews into Babylon. And so that, that experience of captivity and also slavery at the time um, was... was was horrendous, there was all kinds of persecution, but they were there in a time in Babylon when actually Babylon was going through this incredible artistic and cultural renaissance. So there were all these images everywhere, depicting heroes with wings and striking beasts with curved swords. There were mythological characters. There were figurines that people would have in their homes, and those fi- the, and the figurines were either sort of something that people would use to worship with or they were supposed to keep away bad spirits. But these figurines were covered with these incredibly um, wild images of these mythological creatures. And so in the lexicon, in the experience, in in the mental image of that Babylonian captivity, were all of these incredible beasts and centaurs and, and images. And all of that really did inspire people like John when he was writing these kinds of texts. It wasn't necessarily that he believed that mythological creatures were real, but these mythological creatures represented to him the experience of captivity and persecution. That's sort of my little pin into Revelation, not because I'm an Episcopalian and I need everything to be like nice and happy and smooth and, and everybody in pearls. That's my experience of Revelation because it challenges us to take a text that we may be a little scared of and unpack it and really understand what's at the root of that. 
for John, the struggle is really about setting up these images that will allow us to understand the root messages of Revelation. John knew we were going to read these things as metaphor and allegory. And this is a crazy part of our modern life where we have people who don't necessarily read a lot of these texts as metaphor and allegory. But the point of this text in Revelation is simply to say that the world that we live in is filled with temptation and filled with the presence of darkness, of our own dark side, of the dark side of the world. And our job as Christians and our job as believers is to simply keep our eye on the heavens, to simply keep our eyes peeled for goodness, to keep our eyes looking in some way for that goodness to come into our lives and penetrate our hearts. That's all this book of Revelation really, really is about. Now, as you shift over to the gospel reading, you get this similar story in some ways of Nathaniel. It's this early, early experience of Jesus calling a disciple um, into ministry. And, and, and Nathaniel is a complete nerd. Nathaniel's sitting under a fig tree, and he is studying his Torah. He is digging in. He is trying to figure out what he's looking for because he is awaiting God's presence in his life. And so he is a skeptic, but he's open. He's a seeker, but he's not a sucker. You have to get that about Daniel. And what Jesus says as he comes into relationship with Daniel, he's, he's kind of got his eye on him from the corner of his eye. He sees Nathaniel and he sees him studying and he sees him doing the work. And Jesus recognizes Nathaniel's virtue. And Jesus affirms Nathaniel's virtue. He says, I know you've been waiting for me. I'm here. Come with me. Join me. Go on this journey with me. At the same time, Nathaniel recognizes him. And that is a miraculous act for a simple human to recognize Jesus in his goodness and in his holiness. Because there were not great monsters behind Jesus. There were no big lights behind him in this story. There was no way to recognize Jesus unless you really had done your homework and you had understood this second coming and what you were looking for. And most of all, you wouldn't have recognized Jesus unless you were open to being able to recognize Jesus. The Nathaniel Call story is a reminder of us, to us all in a fairly cynical and, and guarded world that we must do two things. We must know our stuff. We must be kind of nerdy about understanding what it is to be a Christian. We have to dig in and chew on this stuff. But second, we have to be open. We have to be open to recognizing moments when the living God comes into our lives and penetrates our heart. So how does all this kind of play out in, in the world that we live in? Uh, and that's, that's really the challenge, is 
what does it mean to be kind of nerdy about understanding the Christian life? And then what does it mean to be open? So I, I several years ago, I heard a story about a man, and you may actually know this. Um, you may have heard of this man. His name is Dolph Hatfield. And Dolph Hatfield um, is a research scientist at the National Cancer Institute. He is the sweetest man. He's probably 90 years old. Um, he is the father of three and the husband of one, and he just won last week eight gold medals at the Senior Olympics. I mean, the man is on fire still. So he's traveled the globe. He's published more than 300 scholarly articles. He's climbed Kilimanjaro and summited the highest point in Mexico. The guy skydives, and he bungee jumps. I don't think he bungee jumps anymore at 90, but like he was bungee jumping at 75. So he's kind of amazing, or insane. Um, so I'd heard all of this about Dolph, and then I heard one story that really intrigued me, and so I, I took it upon myself to find him and to ask him to lunch. And so Dolph is a longtime member of, and Dolph and his wife are longtime members of St. John's Lafayette Square in, in D.C., right across the street from, from the White House. And years ago, he befriended a man named William Wallace Brown. In 1988, he befriended this guy. And there's actually a great Washington Post article about this. And Mr. Brown moved onto the streets and was homeless um, because he was protesting the fact that his house was essentially stolen from him by this shyster lawyer. Mr. Brown had been an alcoholic, he was not of his right mind, and he basically signed away his home to this shyster. So over the years, Mr. Brown and um, Dolph became friends, and then Dolph over the years brought in more, became friends with more and more, particularly men who were experiencing homelessness in that area of Washington. So he worked very quietly and humbly to advocate for the guys. But more importantly, he just sort of came alongside of them. He got to know them. He got to know their heart. Um, and he walked, by, walked alongside of them in their, in their journey. The kind of funny and cool thing, and one of the reasons I wanted to track him down, is that every month Dolph takes these guys out for breakfast. And his thing is, he takes them to the fanciest places they can go in Washington, D.C. So they go to the Four Seasons. Um, they, go to, they, go, they go anywhere. Um, and it's about 10 guys, and they've been going to breakfast for a very long time. And most of them are no longer on the street, but all of them have experienced homelessness in a pretty significant way. Um, Dolph also... He also is a member of the Cosmos Club. And if you know the Cosmos Club, it is kind of an old school club off of DuPont Circle. So Dolph really likes to take the guys to the Cosmos Club as well, which you would think is not a cool thing in the eyes of the Cosmos Club, but in fact, it was. So Dolph would um, build this relationship among these men, and they, had, and they continue to do this to this day. There was a night, and he told me this at lunch this week, there was a night when the, there was a fancy party that was canceled the day of at the Cosmos Club. And so the staff got together and said, let's call Dolph and just have all of his friends over. And so, 
So, so Dolph rounded up all of these guys, these homeless guys that he'd been helping, and he brought them to the Cosmos Club. He said, you know, even though it's closed tonight, this is a, for our private party. You've got to wear your coat and tie, one thing or another. So he made that happen. Um, and the staff put on the most extraordinary party for them. So when you walk into the Cosmos Club, you, and when, when, next, to, next to Dolph, every person on that staff knows who he is because they have watched him be a transformational person in the lives of people that most of the world ignores. So I'm not a naturally particularly spiritually spiritual character. I, prayer is a real work for me, and I don't have a natural contemplative bone, so I have to push myself to be particularly contemplative. Actually, after 15 years in Los Angeles, I would have like these yoga teachers who would try to tell me about my inner pitta and one thing or another. And I feel like I sometimes I just want to throw things at people who judge me for um, my not so contemplative um, practices. But I, people like me and maybe people like you, when I'm trying to figure out what it is that I can do to live the Christian life now, I have to find practices and disciplines that allow me to engage the living God, that remind me of what the living God looks like in the world and is breaking how God is breaking through our lives. And so my practice is to find people like Dolph and take them to lunch and hear more about them. Because at the end of the day, the Christian faith is not really about following a bunch of rules. It's about finding the people that in some way in their lives is embodying Christ and getting to know those people and allowing those people just to rub off on you, just to influence you in some way. Michael slayed his beasts and kept his eye on heaven. Nathan studied. He was a skeptic and a scholar, but he recognized Jesus. Part of our life and part of our call is simply to recognize the living God amongst us. Amen.